Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
We are in Romans chapter 14 this morning. Last week, we got five verses from the end of the chapter. It's taken us two weeks to get through the chapter. I hope that you remember most of what you've learned the last two weeks and that you understand that Paul is dealing with the differences between the Jewish saints in Rome and the Gentile saints in Rome. And they are at odds with each other. They have differences that are based on tradition. They have differences based on primarily what they're willing to eat or not eat. Among the Gentiles, they're concerned about eating things that might be sacrificed to idols. Among the Jews, they're concerned about eating something that wouldn't be kosher, that would be against the law of Moses. Paul is writing to both groups in order to tell them that since they are all in Christ, since they have all been saved by the same spirit, since they are all part of the same body, the church, that these differences between them should not be, should not count for anything. And the way that he brings peace to the whole group, the whole of the church, is that he instructs the stronger in faith, the stronger in conscience, the ones who are able to exercise freedom in the things that they allow for themselves. He says those people, the stronger people, should reach down to the weaker people, the brothers who are weaker in faith, and so they do keep holy days, or they do try to keep kosher rules, or they only eat vegetables because they're afraid to eat any meat in case it was sacrificed to an idol. They're afraid to offend their own conscience. Paul says, well, then that is their conviction. They are convinced in their own conscience. And therefore, they are serving God according to their conscience. And you who are stronger in faith, you who are free to eat anything, you who see every day the same, you ought to recognize that they are also blood-bought saints. They also belong to Christ the same way you do. They are just weaker in their traditions and what they are willing to allow. So therefore, you stronger in faith people ought to be tolerant of them. Paul, remember, wrote this as a letter. His intention was that this entire letter of the book of Romans would be read out to a congregation so that they could be educated by it. It has taken us months and months to go through this letter to try to get the detail out of it, but I don't want you to miss the overall context of it. The overall context, remember, is that Paul has already spent what we would call three chapters worth of time, Romans 9, 10, and 11, explaining God's ongoing love for Israel and that there is a remnant in Israel and that there are people within national Israel who don't believe as touching the gospel they are enemies for the sake of the Gentiles. And yet Paul says, but because of the fathers, they're beloved by God because of the promises God made to the fathers. So as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake. So he has explained the relationship between God and Israel. And then he spent the next 
chapter talking about Christians' relationships to the authorities in this world, and then went right back to this topic again of Jew and Gentile and the differences between them and how they all have to learn to break down that middle wall of partition, how they have to learn to get along, and how the stronger in faith, stronger in conscience, need to be patient with those who are weaker in conscience. And I don't want you to miss the flow of the whole argument. And so we're going to read the whole of chapter 14. I know I scared you. You probably thought, he's going to read the whole book of Romans. He's going all the way back to Genesis 1.1. Don't do it, Jim. But we're going to read the whole chapter 14 just so you understand his argument and hopefully after all the things that we've been teaching for the last couple of weeks, it will make more sense to you now. Then we will build up a little bit of speed for when we get to verse 19, and that's where the new material will start. Thus endeth the introduction. Chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That is the sort of key instruction that he is then going to stretch out on, elucidate more, except into your congregation, except into your meetings, those who are weaker in faith. But don't do it for the purpose of passing judgment. I believe I told you that's dialogmas on their dialogue, on what they have to say on their opinions. Don't accept them in just so you can make fun of them. Accept them in for their benefit, for their good, so that they can grow in faith, so that they can grow to the full freedom in Christ. Verse 2 says, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So let not him who eats all things Regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. That's the whole point. God has accepted the weaker brother and the stronger brother. Therefore, neither side has any position of moral uprightness where they can stand in contempt or in judgment of the other group. They're both accepted by God. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes a day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. Both groups thank God for their eating or not eating. If they are thanking God, then they are doing it according to their own conscience before the Lord. Therefore, they're not to be judged or condemned. Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. Or if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live 
or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way, in the way of joy and peace and righteousness, for him who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and is approved by men. Are you following Paul's argument so far? It's a very plain, clear argument. Now, last week when we finished talking about the differences between the strong in faith person and the weaker in faith person, as Steve made a comment, he applied it to all of us and the way we live and the way that we deal with each other. We all have certain areas where we're very strong in faith. We all have areas where we feel that what we do, what we eat, what we allow in our minds, what we accept in our lives, where we're very strong in it. But let's be honest, we also all have our traditions. We also all have our areas that we're not willing to cross. And that's fine according to Paul. Whatever your conscience is, whatever your tradition is, whatever your conviction is, if you stand on that, that's fine for you. The problem is when you decide that your conviction has to be everybody's conviction. That just because you are convinced of something, everybody else ought to be convinced of it. And then if somebody acts in a way that is different than your conviction, you judge them or you condemn them because they didn't live up to your conviction. Because they don't have to live up to you. You are not the standard. They have to live up to God. And Paul has plainly said here, since they are servants to God, it is God who will make them stand. So while you're busy condemning someone, putting someone down, correcting someone according to your own tradition, it is God himself who is lifting them up, who is securing them, who is planting them. 
So if God is securing, planting, taking care of them, and you're busy condemning them, then you're in opposition to God himself. And God himself has already told you what your attitude toward your other brethren, fellow believers, ought to be. I guarantee you, there's no question, I guarantee you that everybody in this room has some long-held belief some tradition, something they've held on to their whole life that doesn't really come out of the Bible. It's just something that comes out of their background. It's something that maybe their parents, their grandparents, some preacher somewhere said to them. We all walk around with our presuppositions of what we think righteousness looks like. Paul says, let every man be convinced in his own mind. Because in the end, as Paul says, every one of us stands before God individually. Every one of us gives an account of ourselves. And it's not going to help you to say, well, you don't understand. I was around Kellen, and he wasn't like me, and so I told him off. And so I corrected him. I tried to lift him up because he didn't serve God the way I serve God. You only have you to deal with in front of God. Therefore, I think we can say in principle, you only have you to deal with in this Christian walk right now. On Facebook so often, on so much social media, there is a tendency for people to correct other people, to condemn other people, to judge other people. And my wife will tell you that my response to it all the time, she's probably tired of hearing me say it, my response is always, you have enough to do dealing with you. If you haven't perfected you yet, then what makes you think it's your job to perfect Paul or Christian? Or Conrad, good luck. Who's going to, that was just a joke. You have enough to do dealing with you. And notice where Paul places it. You are not to judge another man's servant. You are not to judge your brother. If he in his conscience is following after is worshiping God according to the dictates of his own tradition, if those traditions don't run contrary to the clear biblical teaching, then that is just their tradition. And if it's weaker than your tradition, you have no platform, you have no standard from which to judge them or condemn them. You have enough to do dealing with you. Is there anybody here who would like to claim perfection? I should not put my hand up. No, well, then you have enough to do. Your work, your homework assignment from God is already put in place. You deal with you. Because believe me, if we all ganged up and took a good look at you, oh, we could find something in you. We could condemn you. We could judge you. We could find something that's not right about you. You deal with you. So Paul says, the kingdom of God 
is not in eating and drinking. That's not what it's ultimately about. It's not about the traditions of what they will or would not eat or what day they would or would not keep. Those traditions are not ultimately what the kingdom of, of God is about. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy. And if you're constantly being condemned by other so-called brethren, what joy is there in that? And by the way, what real righteousness are they demonstrating when they do that? Because they're certainly not being righteous. Because they're doing the very thing God said not to do. And they're not bringing peace. And that is the key to Paul's whole argument. There needs to be the ceasing of the againstness between brother and brother over tradition. The kingdom of God, the building up of the church... The plan of God is not about the traditions, not about eating and drinking. It is ultimately about righteousness, acting righteously, dealing in peace, making peace with your brethren, and joy, common joy in the Holy Spirit that we all commonly have. I believe, I am convinced, that I have the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here doing this. I had other plans. I have the Spirit of God. And that is the motivation in my life. That is the governor on my behavior. And that is what draws me to God and his word continually. And that brings me great joy. And then I look at somebody like Micah. And if I recognize that in Micah there is the same spirit, that's joy. That's happiness because I know that we have something in common. Despite everything else we don't have in common, we have the Spirit of God in common. And that's great joy. Therefore, I should treat him righteously. I should treat him peaceably because we share the common Spirit of God. We're going to end up in the same eternity forever we might as well start getting along now. (laughs) If we don't get along, it's going to be a long time that we're stuck with each other. So the kingdom of God is in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves God by the Spirit, if you're serving God in the Holy Spirit and in righteousness and in peace and in joy, if that is the way that you are serving Christ, then you are acceptable to God. Notice he said, if you eat, if you have the freedom to eat, acceptable to God. If you have the limitation on your conscience that you don't eat everything, acceptable to God. If you worship one day above another because that's your tradition, that's your conscience, that's your upbringing, acceptable to God. If you have complete freedom where you count every day the same, acceptable to God. So Paul says, if a person is acceptable to God, then you ought to treat them like somebody who's been loved and accepted by God. And that means you ought to be sacrificially loving toward them. And if their traditions don't comport with your freedom or the level that you think you have of actual freedom, which is why I kept stressing that we all have our traditions, nobody is perfectly free. 
But if somebody isn't living up to your level of what you think Christian freedom is, your job is to step down to them, to help them, to lift them up, to come alongside them. They don't have the freedom, which means they can't get up to where you are. You have to come down to where they are. And Paul says that he would limit himself over and over and over again and be all things to all people so that he could win the more to Christ. He was willing to limit himself. Now, when we get to chapter 15, he's going to say, don't just please yourself because Christ is your example and Christ did not please himself. So if that's your example, if you say you're a Christian then you ought to follow the example of Christ who sacrificed himself, not for himself, sacrificed himself for you because you were weaker, he was stronger. Do you get the equation? He stepped down to you. He's sitting at the right hand of God. You don't improve him. You coming to see his glory does not make him any more glorious. It just means that you get the opportunity to see that glory. And so if Christ himself, the one who you say is your Lord and master, if he himself would sacrifice himself and go from strength to weakness, from riches to poverty for you, then as you are following him, how should you act toward your brother? especially a weaker brother. Do you get the argument? Yes, sir. Paul's making a rock-solid argument here. Let's start at verse 19. I guess technically, now thus endeth the introduction. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It's a great summary statement. What he's saying is, whoever you are, whatever your position is in the church, there are going to be people who are more free than you, and there are going to be people who are less free than you. Ultimately, what you're pursuing is peace, the stopping of the againstness between you. And pursue it. Notice he didn't just say, sit back, relax, peace is coming. Notice he did not say, if you have decent leadership in your church, then ultimately he's going to instruct you how to have peace with each other. He said, you individually, you who name the name of Christ, you don't just wait for peace, pursue it. That's an activity. That is you actively getting a hold of your mind, getting a hold of your conscience, getting a hold of your behavior, and then acting on what you know. Biblical Christianity is not passive. Biblical Christianity is here are the facts, here's the theology, here's the details, here's the history, and then now go do it. Now go live it. Now go be the way that you're instructed to be in the Bible. Because I guarantee our human flesh, before the end of this week, you will think at some point that you need to correct somebody because you don't think they're doing it the way you would do it. It's guaranteed. It's just going to happen. That's our human flesh. And yet the instruction from God through the Holy Spirit is that we shouldn't be that way. 
That kind of judgment, that kind of condemnation of other people shouldn't be mentioned among genuine Christians, should not be mentioned within the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let me be very, very clear yet again. We're not talking here about the fundamentals of the doctrine. Remember, we looked, I guess it was two weeks ago, at Paul saying, I've laid the foundation. The foundation doesn't change. The foundation is Christ. He has laid out the fundamental doctrine that lays at the heart of Christianity. You don't get to mess with that. That stays the same. But then he says, now be careful how you build on that. Some people are going to build gold and silver and precious stones. Some people are going to build wood, hay, and stubble. And all their works are going to be tried as by fire, though they themselves are going to be saved. They're either going to get a reward or they're going to suffer loss. But he's talking about Christians as a group. And he is saying, be careful how you build on the foundation. You don't get to change the foundation. The foundational doctrines of Christ, who he is, how he came to the planet, son of God, virgin birth, all of that stuff that is the fundamental gospel stuff, you don't get to change. But once that's established, and I believe everybody in this room believes the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, where do you differ? On how you build on it. So be careful how you build on it. And part of how you build on it is making sure that you are patient with people who are building differently than you are. Got it? But in the end, still saved. So then let us actively pursue the things which make for peace. In this context, what things result in peace? Not judging each other. Not condemning each other. Not judging a servant who belongs to God and not to you. Let us pursue that. Because those things... Bring about peace within the body, within the church. Has anyone here ever been a member? And you don't have to raise your hand. Just think internally for a moment, and your hand might just magically go up anyway. Uh, (laughs) Has anybody here ever been part of a genuinely contentious church? Oh, well, I guess you and I was just kind of obvious. Yeah, there cannot be unity, and there cannot be peace as long as there is that kind of argument, uh, disjointed theology, not just judging each other, but in our case, actively threatening other people within the body, that doesn't bring peace to the congregation. And the congregation who are part of the kingdom of God are supposed to be righteousness, joy, and peace. So Paul emphasizes it again. So then let us pursue those things that make for peace and for the building up of each other. Not the tearing down of each other. Not the condemnation and the judgment of each other. Pursue the things that help build up one another. Okay, here's another question that you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody in here hurting? Yeah, sometimes we hurt physically, sometimes we hurt out of sickness, sometimes we hurt just out of emotional grief. And where should we go when we're hurting? And there are people who are afraid to come through that door. I can think of somebody right now 
who's afraid to come through the front door of GCA because they're hurting so bad. And to my way of thinking, they ought to be able to come to the church because this is sanctuary. This is the place they can come and find kindred, find brethren, find people who will not judge them, find people who will build them up. And yet, so often in non-functional churches, there's so much pain and so much judgment. But we're to actively pursue the things that build up one another. Do not tear down the work of God for sake of food. What does that mean? Don't tear down the work of God. He's saying God is building the structure of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, my ecclesia. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is in the activity of building up the church, Jew and Gentile. He's bringing elect individuals into his body, into the ecclesia, the bride of Christ. That is the activity of God right now. And then sometimes people run contrary to the very work that God is doing. And sometimes they do it, in this case, Paul says, over food, because that's the example he's been using through this whole chapter. But it's because of condemning each other instead of building each other up. It's because of judging each other instead of coming alongside and pursuing peace with each other. He's saying, if you are running contrary to those things that are righteousness, joy, and peace within the church, then you are tearing down the very work that God is busy doing. And you're doing it for what? What's your motivation? Food? What's your motivation? Somebody doesn't do it the way you do it? Somebody doesn't keep the same days you keep? I guess this is the right time of year to say this. Somebody recognizes holidays you don't recognize? Is this the time to start tearing people down? Well, he has just told you what the work of God is. The work of God is the building up of men, the saving of men, the choosing of people and drawing them to God in righteousness, in peace, in joy. That is the work of God. Don't be busy tearing it down just because of your traditions, which you cannot find in the Bible to begin with. Does that make sense? All things says Paul. He's still talking about food in this case. All things indeed are clean. That's Paul's way of saying, I can eat anything. Paul says he knows what it is to be abased. He knows what it is to abound. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to suffer lack. He knows what it is to be full. And he knows what it is to be hungry and to suffer. Okay, so this is Paul who knows what it is to be hungry. Do you think at the end of that hunger, if somebody puts some food in front of him, he's going to judge whether or not it's kosher to eat that? No, he's going to be happy for the food. Look, we are all massively overfed. Let's just admit that. And so we don't struggle the way people in the Middle East did 2,000 years ago to find food. Remember what I've told you so many times. Job one every day was find food. That was how you sustained yourself, and it wasn't uncommon for them to go sometimes several days without having food. So Paul has this great freedom where whatever food he finds, he considers it clean. Now remember that he is a Jewish guy. 
a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This is a guy who once upon a time said that before the law he was blameless. Once upon a time, this was a really kosher dude. This was a guy who only ate those things that were clean. The cleanliness laws meant a great deal to him. So for him to be able to say, well, now everything is clean, something changed in him. Something dramatic happened in him. I would argue it's that he met Christ. I would argue that it's because of the inception of the new covenant and the end of the old covenant. And he's the one that argues so adamantly that the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, the new covenant is now the way that Christians are to live. And that would mean that everything is clean, provided your conscience is free to eat it. Paul says, it's clean, go ahead and eat it. But, get this, but they, those clean things, are evil for the man who eats it and gives offense. We've talked about this a few times. He's saying the same thing again. To any man who thinks something is sin, it becomes sin for him. Because in your conscience, remember he says, let every man be convinced in his own conscience. If in your conscience you're convinced that something is wrong for you, and then you do it anyway, well, then it's still wrong for you. You have sinned because you yourself knew it was wrong, and you did it. So much so that Paul just drew a contrast between the words clean and evil. He said, everything's clean. I can eat anything, but anything that a man eats when he's offending his conscience makes that thing evil. Okay, now the thing, let's say that it's a, a lobster bisque for absolutely no reason whatsoever. That's, we know, and delicious on top of that, buttery, savory. Let's just say that that's the food that we're talking about. Okay, is that lobster righteous? No. 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 Is that lobster sinful? No. 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 He's probably, hopefully, dead. <laughs> he can't do righteousness, and he can't do sin. He, in and of himself, is only delicious. That's all he's got going. <laughs> That's a lot, though. Well, yeah, you got to give him that. So Paul says that the cleanliness or uncleanliness of that animal is determined by the conscience of the person doing the eating. That thing itself is unable to either do righteousness or do sin. That thing in and of itself is neither clean nor unclean. It is the conscience of the person eating it that determines whether it's clean for you or whether it's evil for you. And it's evil for you if you're eating it anyway and you're giving offense while you're doing it. It is good then, verse 21, it is good then not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now I will admit that the words to do anything are added by the translators here in the NASB, but that is the implication of it. It is not good to eat meat. It is not good to drink wine or by 
anything in which your brother stumbles. So Paul has spent this whole chapter primarily talking about foods. He has also brought up some people worship on certain days, some count every day the same. So he's talking about food and he's talking about days, but now he's even expanded the concept out to anything you do that would make your brother stumble is a sin. And he says, I would rather, though I have the freedom, though everything is clean to me, though I can eat anything I want, I won't eat meat if it's going to offend somebody who only eats vegetables. I will not drink wine if there's somebody who is convinced in their mind that drinking wine is not good. And then ultimately, I won't do anything that causes my brother to stumble. And so I think we can extrapolate out from there and say that would include things like, I don't know, going to movies. We used that example a couple weeks ago. Don't do the things that would make your brother stumble. Now, Paul's about to say, if you've got freedom, if you've got faith strong enough that you can eat anything, that you can allow what you allow, if that's you, then have that freedom between you and God. So when you're home by yourself and you want to eat that lobster bisque, have at it. (laughs) But if it's going to offend your brother, don't do it. So you have to be conscious. You have to be aware of who's around you. You have to be aware of how your actions and your freedom are affecting a weaker brother. And you have to make sure that your actions and your decisions are for their building up and not for their tearing down. If they see you, says Paul, if they see you exercising a freedom that they don't have and they become encouraged by your freedom to go ahead and do the thing that formerly would have offended them, then they've offended their own conscience and it's your fault. And that's what tearing down the work of God would look like because you, for sake of your food, for sake of your freedom, for sake of your own conscience, are willing to tear down the very thing that God is actively doing in bringing this person along in the faith. Is it obvious? I will say it, and then you can all say to me, yeah, Jim, that was really, really obvious. (laughs) But is it obvious that not everybody is at the same level of faith That's just, that's really obvious. And so if you happen to be one of those people who have been in Christianity for a long time and you have freedom before God, be aware that just because somebody says, I know Christ, or somebody says, I've been saved, or somebody else is a church-going person, that does not mean that they have advanced in the faith to the same level that you have. And so you should be conscious, you should be aware all the time of how you are affecting other people so that you are affecting them for the good and that you're not tearing them down because God is still working on them. And they don't belong to you. They belong to God. Therefore, treat God's property righteously, in joy, in peace. Does that make sense? Yes, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. 
the faith that you have, the freedom that you have, have as your own conviction before God. When you're home by yourself, when you're home with your family, if they have the same level of conviction that you have, then enjoy the freedom that you have. Thank God for it. Thank God who gives you food. Thank God who gives you the spirit, who gives you that level of freedom. Thank God that he has advanced you in Christianity to the point where you have that freedom and are willing to exercise it. But have it before God. You don't need to have it before your weaker brother. That's the point. You don't need to exercise that freedom in front of your weaker brother if that's going to cause him to stumble. Have it before God. Have it privately. Because happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. That's a fact. If it is true that you are fundamentally condemning yourself if you eat the things that you are convinced are unclean, if you allow the things that you are convinced are wrong for you, but then you do it anyway, well, that's not happiness. But happy is the person who has the level of faith and the level of freedom that he does not condemn himself. Now, there's a little wordplay in these two verses that we kind of miss in the English language. In the English language, there's a couple different words that are actually in the Greek language, the same word, but the nuance changes, and so the English words have been changed in order to give us some sense of what Paul wrote. But really what he said was, happy is he who does not condemn himself. It's the word krino in English letters, K-R-I-N-O. What it means is to be discerning. What it means is to decide between one thing and another. And happy is the person who in his discerning of himself allows the things that he is comfortable allowing. He has discerned it, he has thought about it, he has considered it, and these are the things that he is willing to do, and it doesn't condemn him, so he's happy. I agree with that. But then, he who doubts, in the Greek, it's diakrino, D-I-A-K-R-I-N-O, And what it means is to have some scruple of conscience to do that deciding, to do that separating, but then to have decided against yourself. And so that's what it is to doubt. You're not really sure. You think it's okay. You're just not really sure it's okay. But then he who has that scruple of conscience is Condemned, katakrino. That kata prefix means down. It's a, it's a word that means oppression. It's a, an intensifier. And so it means actual condemnation. So you actually condemn yourself, katakrino, if you have diakrino, scruples of conscience or doubts in the things that you have, but happy are you who don't krino. Yourself. Okay, those are the words that are being used by Paul here and the translators trying to get the sense of the implications of what he's saying have just added several different English words. The principle is you're happy if you can eat or not observe a day or anything and you don't condemn yourself in what you're allowing, but he who doubts, who has some... <laughs> 
worry about it, some reconsideration about things, he's actually condemning himself if he eats because his eating is not from faith. You cannot be full of faith and doubting at the same time. It's one or the other. You're either confident, you have faith in Christ, you have faith in your freedom, or you doubt whether what you're doing is correct. Okay, here's a tough one. Don't raise your hands. Here's a tough one. How many of you have ever done something that in the back of your head, some little voice has said to you, you probably shouldn't be doing this. And then you did it anyway. Paul says, you're busy condemning yourself. You're actively hurting yourself as you're doing it. You're actively hurting the relationship between you and the Spirit of God. I would go so far as to say you're grieving the Spirit of God who has already convicted you of that thing and yet you, in your ego, have decided that you're going to do it anyway, that it's okay, it's not going to hurt you. Paul says here, that's not without consequence. You're condemning yourself. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that you're condemning yourself to eternal condemnation, but I do think Since we're talking about a God who corrects people, who chastens those who he loves, you're setting yourself up for chastening. You're setting yourself up for correction. And God, if he loves you, is going to correct you. Because you have just done the thing that you are convinced you shouldn't be doing. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So you're actively sinning, sinning against God, sinning against your own conscience. You're not helping yourself. You're not posing any advantage to yourself. You're hurting yourself. Chapter 15, verse 1, same thought. He's still saying the same thing. I don't know why there's a big 15 there. There really shouldn't be. Because he's saying the same thing. Now we who are strong, strong in faith, ought to bear the weakness of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Earlier I asked a question about why do we do these things and I saw Joni in the back and Joni mouthed the word pride. Right? That's why we do these things. Because of our sense of self-sufficiency, self-aggrandizement. The reason we would do that is because we are pleasing ourselves. We're going to do what we want to do. I'll do what I want to do. If you're too weak to hang, that's on you. That's your problem. If you don't have the freedom I have, well, too bad for you. I'm going to do what pleases me. That Attitude pervades the world. It should not pervade the church, and yet far too often does. We who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those who are without strength. That really summarizes everything we've been saying now for three weeks. We who have the strength in the faith, we ought to step down to those who are weak in the faith. We ought to encourage them. We ought to help them. We ought to build them up. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor 
for his good, for his edification. So what's the primary reason for the things that you do when you're dealing with weaker brothers? It's not about you. It's not about pleasing you. It's about doing what is good for his building up, which is what the word edification means. You're trying to build him up in the faith. You're trying to bring him along in Christian freedom and Christian love and Christian peace. You, because you have greater time perhaps in Christianity, have a greater confidence in the word, you have a greater sense of what Christ really accomplished, you have a greater sense that all things are clean. Okay, that gives you strength. But from that position of strength, you're supposed to help the people who don't have strength. This is the same concept that we see in so many uh, tales of heroes. Heroic tales are always about strong people helping the weak. That's the same idea. If you're one of those strong ones spiritually, help the weak. Don't condemn the weak. Don't judge the weak. Don't bring them into your congregation to make fun of them. But instead, help them, encourage them, build them up. Everything you do, make sure it's for pleasing your neighbor. Notice that Paul uses that word pleasing a couple of times. Don't please yourself, please him. So you're going to have to restrict some of your freedom for his good. Because, here's the example I started at, I don't know, 50 minutes ago, Christ himself did not please himself. And then Paul gives you an example of what he means when he quotes the reproaches of those who reproached you, Jesus speaking to God. Actually, you're going to find it in the Psalm, Psalm 69, verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached God, fell on Christ. Christ made himself, willingly made himself, a sin sacrifice for you. He was willing to be the sin sacrifice for you because you couldn't do it. But he didn't deserve it. What did he ever do to deserve the beatings, the bloodshed, the nails, the mockery? The beard being torn out of his face while centurions beat him in the face. Which part of that did he deserve? None of it. it. How much of that do you deserve? All of it. it. Yeah. So you are the weaker in this scenario. He is the stronger. He is so strong in faith, he's sinless. That's how strong in faith he is. You don't begin to compare He is so strong in faith, he was willing to come down to the planet, take on human flesh, even though he considered himself equal with God and didn't even see that as a form of robbery. It wasn't even something that he grasped at. It was just a simple reality. I am the very son of God. I am equal with God. I was there from the beginning. That's what John 1 says, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You don't get much more faithful than that. That's how strong his faith was. Then he comes down to the planet and sacrifices himself for the people who deserve all of it. What was he doing? According to Paul, he was not pleasing himself. Had he pleased himself, 
when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup. He'd have followed through with that. He said, my father will send whole legions of angels to protect me. He didn't call for them, but he could have. He didn't bail out. He didn't leave you in your sin. He didn't leave you in the wrath of God. He didn't leave you in that state of condemnation. Instead of pleasing himself, he took on all the agony that you so rightly deserve. Why? Because according to Paul, in the scenario he's building right here, he was pleasing you. Which is why we read that God does everything according to his own good pleasure. It pleased God, says Isaiah. It pleased God to lay the sins of his people on Christ and to buffet him. That's what pleased God. Okay, so big theological construct. Jesus, who could have pleased himself, who could have stayed in heaven and just been glorified for the rest of whatever, did not please himself so that he could redeem a people for himself to bring to God who will live in the glory and the splendor of heaven forever. And those people weren't in any way pleasing to God. Weren't any good, didn't improve God. And yet those are the people that Jesus was willing to lay himself down for because he did not please himself. Instead, he worked to please us in redeeming us, which we couldn't do. Do you see the difference? It's a hard one to get a hold of, isn't it, sometimes when you think it pleased God to punish him. That's what God was pleased to do. So Paul picks that up, says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his building up, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me, fell on Christ. And then Paul says, thinking about the scripture since he has reached back into the Old Testament to bring forward this concept which undergirds all the theology that he's been putting forward here. He then makes a comment about what these things in scripture are all about. And he's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about the New Testament here. When he speaks of scripture, he says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written For our instruction, okay, for all the Church of Christ folks, just let me throw this in. For all the congregations who say, we're a New Testament congregation, and they don't spend any time studying or learning out of the Old Testament, Paul just said in the New Testament that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. That's what it's for. That's why we read it. That's why we've been going book by book through the Old Testament and looking at the details of it. It's not just empty history. It's not just so we can know more about the wanderings of the Jews. It's so that we can understand the essential instruction and teaching that Paul is drawing from constantly as he's constructing what we call New Testament doctrine. It's all based in, it's all founded in 
Old Testament teaching. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Now follow this. That through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Remember when he said that, the New Testament did not exist. But he said in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, he found encouragement. That's where he learned about God. That's where he learned about Christ. All the times that he said this is a fulfillment of what was written beforehand. He learned all the things that he knew building up into the New Testament theology that he wrote in what we call the New Testament. He learned all of that by understanding the Old Testament. By understanding the scripture. And he says that that brought him encouragement and perseverance. Now, before you're too quick to say, oh, yeah, well, the perseverance, that's the thing we do. We persevere. We hang on. That's the, the P of the tulip acrostic. Perseverance of the saints. Yeah, we're going to get through it. We're going to hang on. We're going to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, and we're going to hang on till the end. Look at the next verse. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. It is God who gives you perseverance. It is God who gives you encouragement. And Paul just said that that encouragement and that perseverance that God gives, he gives through the scripture. He gives it through the word. Is it too obvious at this point to say you need to know your Bible? You need to understand what the scripture says because the things that the Bible says are for our instruction and to guide us in this persevering walk through this lifetime. The way that we're going to stand firmly on the word of God is by knowing the word of God, by reading the word of God, by having confidence in the word of God because the very word of God is going to bring you perseverance, get you through it, and it's going to bring you encouragement while you're persevering, while you're going through this life and its difficulties. Look, I'll make it really simple. Have you ever, I've had a lot of have you ever questions this morning. <laughs> have you ever been in the midst of a struggle, a real difficulty? I mean, sometimes life is hard. Life beats a man to death. And as you're going through this very difficult life, have you ever found a verse, found a scripture, heard a bit of a word that built you up in the midst of your agony? Yeah, absolutely. I see all these heads nodding. That's what Paul is talking about. It is the word of God that is going to give you the confidence and the faith and the understanding and the instruction of God. And the more you know about the God who is saving you, the more you know about the God who has chosen you, elected you, the God who has established you in Christ, the more that you know about that, the more you are going to persevere as you're going through this life and its difficulties. And in the midst of all that perseverance, you're going to find encouragement in the word. Have you ever... I know. <laughs> Have you ever reached the point where you were ready to give up? Oh, yeah. yeah. Just given up. I've had enough. I have often used the phrase, if I knew who to quit to, I would quit. 
Okay, so Paul admits life here is not always easy. He certainly knew that with the things that he endured in this lifetime. And yet he says it was his knowledge of the word of God, the scripture, what we would call the Old Testament. That is what gave him the perseverance to get up and go again. And that's happened to me so many times. There have been so many times where I would quit. I just don't know who to quit to. And it's the word of God that brings me back. It's not somebody else. It's not watching somebody else's performance. It's not watching somebody else do good. It's not. It's, it's the word of God. The people who have ever helped me the most in those circumstances are the people who brought me the word of God. The people who remind me of things like, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Well, that's good to know in the midst of the struggle. It's good to know that in the midst of the trial, it is the very word of God in this case, what we would call the Old Testament, that gives you perseverance and encouragement. It is God who gives that to you, and he gives that to you through his word. And so the word of God is the communicating vehicle through which he speaks to your heart, to your spirit, to lift you up and take you on again, which is... It's the whole point of this diatribe, which is the much, much stronger stepping down to the much, much weaker. See the principle at work? Christ didn't please himself, and God, through his word, is seeing to it that the weaker ones, the struggling ones, the hurting ones persevere and are encouraged. He doesn't need encouragement. He's God. He's doing fine. He's encouraging you because you're the weaker one. Now, knowing that God, the stronger one, stepped all the way down to you to encourage you, to instruct you, to keep you persevering and going on, knowing that he, the one who has no needs at all because he's God, that's how strong in faith he is, If he was willing to reach down to you, if Christ was willing not to please himself, but to please you by taking on the punishment that you rightly deserved, if he was willing to step down to you, if the Holy Spirit, the comforter who comes alongside, who is building up and encouraging you, that's the stronger one who is taking care of the weaker one, if in all those cases you can see that it's the stronger one taking care of you, how should you deal with a weaker one when they come around you? Your motivation for this kind of behavior is God himself. It is Christ himself. It is everything God has already done for you that is your motivation to live like this. You got it? Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. It's very much what he said in the second chapter of Philippians, that you would all be of the same mind. The same mind that was in Christ Jesus should be in all of you. If you're all of one mind, if you're all of one accord, then you're not going to be fighting. You're not going to be backbiting. You're not going to be judging. You're not going to be condemning one another. You should all have that same mind according to Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. That's the fundamental. That with one accord and with one voice 
you may glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.